If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 5. And we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 19, verse 18. John chapter 5. This will be our last little bit in John before we get to the Christmas service next week. And then uh, have a little bit of a break from John over the, the New Year. So um, it's a wonderful passage to finish on as we think about it this year. John chapter 5 verse 1 goes like this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we come to your word that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say, and that you yourself would speak to us through the power of your Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this passage is, uh, is really fascinating because in here we see really the first open opposition to Jesus from the Jewish leaders, at least in John's Gospel. This is where we first come to open, hostile, murderous opposition to Jesus from the Jewish leaders, from the religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The first time we see this opposition. And what's really fascinating is that this opposition comes in light of something absolutely miraculous. Something absolutely amazing. We, we read about this healing of this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Longer than some of them live in those days. So it's really quite an amazing story. But, you know, in here, in this through this interaction, through this episode of Jesus' ministry, we kind of, we get this glimpse into who Jesus really is. And it just so reminds me of when I used to be a kid, I used to watch, you know, Chinese shows, TV shows. And there was this one TV series that I found really interesting. And I think it was based off maybe, uh, maybe a true fact from Chinese history, maybe a folktale. But it was about this, you know, this emperor of, of China. And, you know, the Chinese empire was, was famous for lasting all the way up to the 19th century. You know, so the longest lasting empire in world history. And this was way back in the day. And this emperor, he cared for his citizens. He loved his citizens. 
But he lived in a palace, he ate all the best food, all that kind of stuff. So what he did was he got somebody else to pretend to be emperor, and he went and lived as a normal citizen. You know, he, he put on peasants' clothes and he went down and lived in the in the rural areas with all the peasants, saw all the hardship they suffered, and he himself was, you know, harshly treated. People thought he was a peasant. And so he as an emperor stepped down into the lives of his peasants and his citizens and lived in, in their place to see what it was like. And uh, some of the most dramatic moments in that TV series was when his real identity was revealed. You know, you see him get mistreated and bullied and you're just kind of waiting for him to reveal, actually, I'm the emperor. Back off, you know. And uh, sometimes it would come through and maybe a, a, an official would see him and suddenly kneel down and everyone's shocked. Why would you kneel down to this peasant? You know, some of the, those are some of the most exciting moments I remember when I watched that TV show as a, as a kid. And interestingly enough, that's kind of what we see with this passage. Jesus reveals his true identity. Now, the, the interesting thing is that in that TV show, when they found out he really was the emperor, wow, they, they were floored. They were trying to suck up to him. They all bowed down to him. But when Jesus revealed his true identity, all he was met with was murderous opposition. It was a, a hatred that wanted to kill them and silence them. But let's look at the story and, and see how this unfolds. We see that there was a feast of the Jews. We're not exactly sure what feast it was, but... We know that in Jerusalem, there were many people gathered there. And Jesus went to this place, this pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. And there was a, a multitude of invalids. People who had issues, they were lame, they were, they were blind and deaf, they were invalid, they were paralyzed. All sorts of issues, all lying there. And the reason why they're lying there, actually, I don't know if your translation puts it, but in a little footmark between verse 3 and verse 5, there's this other verse that some versions don't include. And it reads like this. Um, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now the reason why some translations, my one, doesn't include it is because this verse wasn't included in some of the earliest copies of John's Gospel. And so from that kind of a, a scholarly perspective, it's not as reliable as every other verse we have here. It's not present in the earliest copies. But what this does tell us is that that was probably the most prevalent belief about the pool back in those days. It's most likely included later on to explain why are there a bunch of people lying around this pool? I think before, because in that day, the most prominent belief was that when the water in the pool stirred a little bit, there was an angel. And whoever stepped out first would be healed. And we know that that is definitely true because in verse 7, which is in the earliest copies, that man was lying there waiting for someone to take him into the pool. So that just helps us to understand what those people were thinking. All lying around the pool. They were hoping to be the first one down to the water when it was stirred up. They believed in that kind of folk superstition. That they would be healed if they were the first ones there. So you can imagine the scene. This wide group of people who had so many issues. And this is one man who has an issue so severe. He's an invalid for 38 years. That is a long time to be paralyzed. To the point where he can't even get to the pool before anybody else can. And he's lying there waiting. Close by. And this man, Jesus, approaches. And Jesus asked him a very curious question. He says, do you want to be healed? 
And the man, you know, almost in an irritated tone, I don't know if you can see it, he says, well, I've got no one to take me there. Of course I want to be healed, but I can't get there. I can't get to the pool to be healed. We're kind of thinking like, what a silly question. Of course I want to be healed. Why would I lie around here all day? I want to be healed, but I can't get healed because I can't get down there fast. And Jesus says to him an incredible sentence. He says, get up. If you said that to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, usually when that happens, nothing happens. Because this man has been, has been an invalid for 38 years. And yet at the mere word of Jesus, he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. In verse 9, we read these incredible words that John records. And at once, the man was healed. At once, when Jesus says, get up, his whole body was changed and he was able to stand up and he took up his bed and he walked. 38 years and it was all gone. At one word of Jesus. One word of command and at once he was healed. I mean, this is incredible. Can you imagine anything like this happening? This is a miracle that is supernatural. To say the least, this is not something that happens every day. And Jesus could do it at a mere word to this man. And then we read, actually, that when the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, which is who John refers to, which is the Jews, when the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, when they found this man lifting his mat and walking around, they said to him, stop, it's the Sabbath. Now there's something we need to understand about the Sabbath in those days. Now the Jewish rabbis, the teachers of the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, they really made sure that you couldn't transgress it. And they did that by taking all the general vague little sections and they made it super crystal detailed clear. They made it incredibly clear. And uh, when we read some of, the, some of the works of the rabbis in those days, they divided work on a Sabbath. So the Sabbath was a day of rest. You couldn't work. They divided what that word work means into 39 different categories of work that was prohibited. 39 different categories. And I'm not going to list them all. But one of them includes making your bed, lifting it from one place to another, transporting possession. That was a work that was prohibited, one of those 39 categories. So they really nailed it down and went much further than God ever made for them to go. So when they saw this man, they said, you need to stop. It's the Sabbath. You can't be lifting your bed. You can't be doing this kind of work. It's prohibited. And the man, and we don't know if he did it in a, in a positive or negative attitude, but he kind of pushes the blame on Jesus. He says, well, the man said to me, take up my bed and walk. And I just listened to him. So really, the fault's not mine. You know, you've got to go to the other guy. He's kind of a, maybe more of a negative blame shifting kind of thing. But he says, you know, this man said to me, take up my bed and walk. And of course, we're not recorded here in John, but of course, that man must have mentioned something of the fact that, hey, I was invalid for 38 years. If the man could heal me, and he told me to take up my bed, I'll take it up. This is something incredible. What a miracle. And yet we read that the, the Jewish leaders, they never even asked about that miracle. All they could see in front of their eyes was the fact that this man broke that broke such a, in one sense, such a minuscule aspect of their 39 categories. 
They could not get past that to even think for one second on the miracle that somebody could say a word and heal a man who's been in Uganda for 38 years. I mean, isn't that incredible? I still find that hard to believe. How could they be so focused on this tiny little thing and forget about the great miracle that has happened? And yet that's what we read. You know, they, they couldn't get past the fact that this man broke the law on the Sabbath. And uh, we read later on that when Jesus sees him in the temple and, and reveals himself to the man and says, Hey, sin no more. Go in peace. Don't, don't do any more sins so that nothing worse may happen to you. And uh, obviously reveals himself to him. The man goes to the religious leaders and says, It was that man, Jesus. He was the man who healed me. He was the one who told me to take up my bed. And again, the tragic reality is that the Jewish leaders, instead of saying, well, tell us more about the miracle. Because that sounds pretty incredible. Maybe if they were more like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who goes to Jesus, his teacher, you must be a man from God, because nobody else could do these wonderful miracles unless God was with him. Maybe if they stopped to think, they would have asked that question. But instead, all they asked was, this man was Jesus, you're sure? He was the one who told you to break the Sabbath? Then we've got to get him. We've got to arrest him. We've got to stop him. We have to oppose him with all our power. Because this man was breaking the Sabbath. At least in their eyes. Now really the main point for us to consider this morning. The one thing I want us to, to see when Jesus answers their objection. We read there in verse 17. Jesus answered them. My father is working until now. And I am working. That's the one line that John records for us as Jesus' answer to such fierce opposition. He says to them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now when he says, My Father, he is referring to God the Father. And when he claims that he is my Father, in a singular, personal, my Father sense, he's claiming a unique relationship to God the Father. Maybe an uncommon you know, frequency in the Old Testament. Sometimes the psalmist pray and refer to God as our Father. You know, we can say God is our Father in the sense that He created us, He made us. But to claim that He is uniquely my Father in a way that is different from you, that's going further than just saying He's our Creator. Jesus is going further than just saying He's our collective Father. He's uniquely my Father. And I am uniquely His only Son. I have a unique relationship with God the Father. That's one thing He says. But He goes further than that. And He says, what my Father does in working until now throughout the Sabbath. I mean, God couldn't break the Sabbath, could He? Sabbath says we should, we should rest. And we know God is still working throughout Sabbath. He doesn't stop upholding the universe on you know, the seventh day of the week. It's not like the universe falls apart seven day, you know, after every six days. God is still working in the sense of holding the universe together, progressing His plan for all time. God's working. He's doing things in this world every single day. And the Jewish opponents recognized that. Oh, they had debates about it. All the rabbis were saying, could God break the Sabbath? No, He couldn't. He Himself is God. He gives the law. He is above the law. He upholds the world. And that is meant to be. So, of course, God doesn't break the Sabbath. 
And that was a consensus. And so when Jesus appeals to that, that was agreement. The Jewish people that he was, he was answering totally agreed with him that God the Father, oh, he's working every day. And he's allowed to work because he's God. He alone is God. He has that authority to continue to uphold the world and do whatever it is. Where it gets very controversial is when Jesus says, my father is working until now, I am working. What he's saying is that he is doing the same works that God the Father is doing. What God does, I'm doing. I mean, this is as pointed as you get to claiming absolute equality with what God does on a Sunday, I do on a Sunday. That's what Jesus is saying. My Father is working until now. I am working the very same thing that He does. And for the Jewish leaders, as soon as they heard that, they understood what He meant. Because we read in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because He was claiming to be equal with God. How dare a man claim to be equal with God? How can someone say with a straight face, what God does, I do. That is blasphemy to the highest. To say that I do the same things as Almighty God who created the world with one word. How could any man claim that high position? Oh, the Jews were furious. They wanted to kill this blasphemous man who would dare to claim equality with God. And yet that is exactly what Jesus claims. You know, in our day, many people would say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He, just, he was a great teacher. He was a great example. But it was his followers who said he claimed to be God. No, no, no. Look at his words right here. Verse 17. My father is working until now. I am working. The same things. Jesus Himself does not leave the option for us to consider Him as merely a great teacher. Jesus doesn't leave you with the possibility of thinking that He is just merely a great man. He makes the claim that He Himself is equal with God, divine. If that's the case, how can we merely think of Him as a great teacher? Because if he's saying the truth, he's so much more than merely a great teacher. But if he's not saying the truth, he's a lunatic and a blasphemer. If he was lying, then the Jews were right to oppose him in such an openly hostile way. So really the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we think about Jesus' claims? What do we think about Jesus? Do we... Do we believe in his claims that he himself is God in the flesh? Or do we reject what he calls himself? Do we reject what he claims about himself? And I think you know, there's two things in this passage that helps us to answer that question. Things that I wish the Jewish leaders asked. Why didn't they ask themselves who could do the miracle of causing an invalid of 38 years to suddenly get up and be so well that he's able to carry his bed and walk around. Who could do this? 38 years gone in a moment. I wish they asked themselves that question. Who is this person? 
who could do such a powerful thing, speaking a word of command and it is done. Wow, that sounds like God. When God speaks, it happens. I wish they thought to themselves and considered that sign because John is very clear, as Steve mentioned when we looked at the previous passage, these works themselves are sufficient proof when we consider Jesus' claims to divinity. Who else could do these miraculous works but God Himself in the flesh? And John is simply an eyewitness. He simply recalls it for us that 2,000 years later we can read and he says, I will put my heart, put my hand on my heart, cross my heart, hope to die. This is what I saw. Seriously, God, this is what I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears. I'm writing it down for you to see through my eyewitness account. Jesus did this to a man. And he did it merely by saying a word. And it was so. Does this not prove that he is more than just a man? And further than that, the fact that Jesus himself, when he claims that unique relationship with the Father, his words claim that unique divinity, that equality with God. His words commend themselves to us to accept Him and to believe in Him. His works and His words both point to the fact that He is God, that He is divine, that He is to be loved and received and worshipped as such. So just like I mentioned with the Chinese TV show, of that emperor stepping down into the peasants and suddenly it was revealed. Everyone is amazed. This is something of a far greater nature. Something of a far more infinite condescension of a distance to travel. For almighty, infinite God to step down and be in the form of a man and in the form of a servant. And we read further in Philippians chapter 2, not merely in the form of a servant, but He came to die, even death on a cross. Why did He come to die on a cross? He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to save those who are invalid. And we know that He's not merely here to heal our physical infirmities and our physical sickness. All throughout John's Gospel, these physical things were pointing to a far greater spiritual reality. And you know the truth is, every single person is simply and spiritually invalid. In the sense that we're, you know, the rest of the Bible can describe us as being so blind to God, we can't even see Him. We have no idea what He is like. Our lives are so filled with all matters of self-centeredness and pride and all, all sorts of things that cause us to live lives that are not good. The Bible says we are spiritually invalid. We need help. We are sick to the bone. And if, God, if Jesus could heal at a word, and He Himself is God, could He not heal our spiritual infirmities, our spiritual sicknesses with one word? And he can heal us with a word. Speak, O Lord. Heal us and we are healed, says the prophet Isaiah. 
We need merely God's help and His word of command. And we ourselves will be made whole in such a wonderful spiritual sense as this man of 38 years was healed. And it's to Jesus that we must go. Now just to close, I want to draw your attention to that really curious thing in verse 6. Why does Jesus ask the man, do you want to be healed? Well, we know that Jesus was not ignorant of this man's condition. Because in verse 6, Jesus, it says, Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus knew about it. He knew his condition. He knew what he was doing there. Why then does he ask him, do you want to be healed? And I think this is very similar to Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in chapter 4. He says, go call your husband. Even though he knew she has already had five other husbands. Jesus was helping the man reveal where that man's hope was in. He was revealing where that man was looking towards for healing. Because we see the guy just reply with an absolute, you know, quick reply. I'm looking to the pool to heal me. Do you want to be healed? Yeah, of course, but I can't get to the pool. It's almost as if Jesus was trying to get him to think. Stop thinking about the pool and look at the person in front of you. Stop thinking about this superstitious belief that an angel comes to stir the waters. Look at who's in front of you. God Himself is before you. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And if you want to be healed, come to me. I mean, the encouraging thing is that the man doesn't even ask if Jesus heals. Jesus comes to him in his sovereign mercy, finds him, and heals him. My friends, 2,000 years later, it is the same. Jesus asks every one of you, do you want to be healed? You have such a deep sickness in your spirit, and you need God himself to heal you. Do you want to be healed? Don't look to anything else. Don't look to, you know, your religious efforts. Don't look to your family and how well run it is. Don't look to your, your career. Don't look to anything except Jesus himself for healing. Do you want to be healed? Then come to Jesus. Come to Him. Ask Him, Lord, speak and I will be healed. Come to Him in faith and say, Lord, heal me. Only you can. The wonderful thing that we see from this passage is that Jesus is so willing. Why else did He come into this world if not to seek and to save all of us who are lost? That's the wonderful, wonderful love that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this morning. We thank You especially now, Lord, for Your Word that You give to us. We thank you, Lord, that as we read of this, um, this passage, we see Jesus' divinity so clear and so, so purely. In his, in his miracle, when he speaks a word of command and the man was healed, and in his words and his testimony about himself, in his own words, claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be one with the Father, doing the same works that the Father himself does. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in Jesus, to take Him at His word and to come to Him, asking Him for healing, asking Him for help, knowing that the wonderful encouragement we have is that He is so willing to help all those who come to Him in faith. 
Help us, Lord, to trust Him. Help us, Lord, to know Him. We pray, Lord, that You would bless us for the rest of this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.